Okay, did that. Shepherding our heart. We talk about this every time we're together. We talk about it and how it relates to all the other disciplines. And this morning, I just want to spend most of our time talking about shepherding the heart and the wisdom that comes forth from that and how we can use that um, in all of the other disciplines that we have in, in front of us here. Scripture tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We see that in Proverbs multiple times. We see it elsewhere in Scripture as well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's really important that we understand what this fear is. This is not a, a servile fear where um, a servant is cowering under an unjust master. This is a fear that comes from having a clear and an accurate understanding of who God is and the sober understanding of how we must live in light of a God who is the kind of God that he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. When we understand who God is more accurately, we are able to fear him rightly. We have a reverence for him that does not come from any place else. And the one place we go to understand God most accurately and most clearly is his word. And so one of the reasons why we, we drag ourselves, we pull ourselves in front of God's word as regularly as we can is so that we can know the God of the word. And the blessing from that is that we would have a sober understanding of God and that that would have effect on, on how we live. So that is our first discipline, regularly taking ourselves before the word the benefit is that we know the God of the Word and that we acquire wisdom from that. The first place we can apply that wisdom is in our own home, in the relationships with those that we have around us, whether these are guys that rent with us, whether these are women who have married us, whether these are kids that we brought into our family that the Lord has given to us. Um, we need the wisdom that is only found from shepherding our heart through the intake of God's Word and the wisdom that's found from confessing our sin to the Lord and the clarity that, that the Lord brings to us as we, we communicate back to him in prayer. We bring that into our home, and, and we have what we need to respond well to the things that the Lord has put in our homes. We have roommates who need to be encouraged, and we have wives who need to be encouraged, who need to be directed, who need to be shepherded with God's word. We have kids who need to understand principles from God's word, and we can deliver those well when we've shepherded our heart well. We have a wisdom in disciplining, in dispensing that wisdom when we have spent time alone with the Lord. Um, we do it gently, we do it carefully, we do it rightly, we do it sensitively, we do it effectively when we do that. We bring ourselves into this ministry at this church, our third discipline, when we've shepherded ourselves well privately and we've shepherded ourselves well in our homes. We, we arrive at this church ready to step into ministry. So again, whether we're serving at the very bottom end of the spectrum in next generation ministries with the ones that you just hold and they don't know you or you're shepherding in student ministries and they're 18 years old and they ask really penetrating questions, we need wisdom from the Lord in interacting with those that we serve. Whether they're asking us questions that relate to life and where they're going in life or whether they're just trusting us to hold them, we need wisdom to do that. And we find that when we shepherd our hearts with God's word. Um, we have wisdom to respond rightly to circumstances that don't go according to plan when we're serving. Um, 
And all of that comes from time spent alone with the Lord. Our fourth discipline here is the qualifications. This is an area where every man should aim to be a deacon qualified. We find those, once again, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. And this is an area where a man needs to be wise. When a man spends time alone with the Lord and he has a reverence for the Lord, he has a fear of the Lord that comes from an accurate understanding for who he is, He's a man who is a dignified man. He's a man who, who is sober about all of the things that are in front of him. When a man fears the Lord rightly and is close to the Lord, he's near to the Lord, he's a man who thinks rightly about all of the things and the opportunities that are in front of him. He thinks rightly about what money is and how to use money. He has God's perspective on resources, and so he's not fond of a sordid or an immoral or a wrong gain or an unjust gain. He's a man who thinks rightly about God's provision and sustenance for him. So he doesn't look at alcohol or any other thing in a way that God doesn't view it. He views it as God's provision for this world. He thinks rightly about it that way. He's a man who loves to manage his home well because he spent time in God's word where God's word is telling him how to manage his home. He's telling him what kind of man he needs to be to manage his home well. So he's well equipped. And he does it wisely. He does it in a way that's effective with his wife. He does it in a way that's effective with his kids. He does it in a way that's effective with his roommates. It's good to read through the qualifications of the deacons. If you haven't done so recently, do so. It's really encouraging to put those in front of you and and pray towards those ends and watch the Lord grow your heart and your awareness of those different qualifications of a man who is a man of dignity, of a man who is not fond of sordid gain, a man who is not double-tongued. When you begin to pray about those things, um, you find your awareness in those in the world around you of your opportunity to be that kind of man. And um, you can encourage others by your growth in that area as well. The fifth discipline is the discipline of the hermeneutic. This is where we intentionally sharpen ourselves in our understanding of the word here at Grace Bible Church. We're doing that here this morning. We've done that all year. Um, The guys who are in H3 are doing that as well. And this is a place where we need wisdom. If you ever need wisdom, you need it in the area of how it is that you you use the knowledge that God has in his word. When we use the, the word to grow only intellectually in our understanding of God's word, That is a dangerous man. It's a man who doesn't know how to use what God has given to him and his revelation of himself for the benefit of the whole body. We want to be men who, because of our time spent alone with the Lord, understand what God is doing in us as he grows us. And so our pursuit of God and our deepened understanding is always done within the context of building up the local church, strengthening the local church within ourselves, and then as that separates into others, so we can be effective for the Lord. So we have opportunities here to do that. We have BUILD, we have H3, we have GBI, we have Shepherdology that we're not doing this year, but we want to do that again, probably after we get the move completed. And all of those are designed to make us the kind of men who are are able to handle God's word well. We're able to handle it well in whatever vocational pursuit we have, whatever home situation we have. So we want to put that in front of us. We want to be men who do that and who use it rightly. And lastly, our our last discipline is the vision and the purpose of 
of Grace Bible Church. We're so thankful that guys are here. You've chosen to make Grace your, your church home. Um, we want to be men who understand the vision and the purpose. Our purpose really here is to, to draw people in, to build people up, and to send people out. And we want to do that first and foremost by preparing our hearts to be the kind of people who can invite ones well to our church and can be used by God to help build them up and can be used by God to help send them out. We want to do all of that by remembering God's glory in all of this, that we're aiming for God's glory in this church. We gather together here this morning for God's glory. We sing in church for God's glory. We listen to the messages for God's glory. We do all of it in the context of the cross of Jesus Christ that has brought us near to God, has brought us in complete atonement with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. We never want to lose sight of that. And we want to do all of this not under our own power, but enabled by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit here. We want to be ones who, who depend on the strength of the Holy Spirit to, to serve in all the ways that we do. So those are our six disciplines, and uh, we want to just put those in front of you once again. Thanks for hearing us on this. Thanks for making these a part of your life. Uh, we encourage you with all of that. So, quarter till. Okay, let's break up into our regular locations, and we'll meet again at 745. As you, um, if you'll take out your uh, yellow sheet first, that's your homework. That's paperclip to the back of the outline for today. Uh, you'll, if, if you're perceptive, you'll notice that my uh, title for that homework is, I forgot to delete it and put in a new title when I duplicated it in pages. So that's just scribble through the reviewing the 35 imperatives for marriage. I think we've done that enough. Uh, not, not like you ever graduate from that, okay? But I have left that in your homework plenty for you. Um, but I, I just didn't change the title for it, so you can just scribble that part out. I didn't want you to be confused if you saw that it said at the top, reviewing the 35 imperatives, and you did all the homework and realized you didn't look at one of them again. Um, so feel free to uh, scribble that out. Today... We get to um, move on to Discipline 3 on the ministry. We'll have uh, two Saturdays together total this year uh, talking about that. Scott Demrest will do one, um, the next one on the ministry coming up in a few weeks, uh, a few meetings. But uh, if you want to take your Bibles and open them up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll be there and then we're going to kind of also turn back to Acts 17. So we're going to kind of be in two places because I really want to have you uh, understand the the context of First Thessalonians. One of the probably uh, one of the greatest byproducts for me personally going through Acts has been the way that it has helped me to put my New Testament together, understanding where letters were written and at what time during the missionary journeys of Paul. And um, so I want you to to see that. So as you turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, keep your hand there, but then uh, turn back to Acts chapter 17 also, and we'll kind of flip back and forth a little bit. So 1 Thessalonians 1, and then Acts chapter 17. Paul in Acts 17, verse 1, is on, he's on a second missionary journey. And before we go any further, I want to pray. 
because I'm just I'm eager to jump in and I but I don't want to forget to pray. So let's do that together. Father, thank you for um, the opportunity just to pause before we dig into your word. And um, Lord, our, our heart's desire is that we would um, worship you during this time, that we would humble ourselves under your word, that it would speak over our lives and that you with your word would have your way. Lord, I pray for these men and for myself, Lord, that you would make us into um, good, godly men who will be very effective for you in gospel ministry in the church and outside the church. So would you please um, draw near to us, Lord, as we draw near to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is on a second missionary journey. It's about mid to late A.D. 50. Okay. Um, we think that Paul was born in A.D. 5. So he's, he's, he's a contemporary to Jesus. Um, he's about five years younger, perhaps, or so, um, compared to Jesus. Um, he's on a second missionary journey. And what just happened was he was just in Philippi. And he's traveling with um, Silas. And you know what happened in Philippi. They were grabbed by the mob. There, were no, there was not a synagogue in Philippi, and the, the Gentiles grabbed him, um, threw him in prison, and after they had beaten him and Silas, and then the whole earthquake while he was in prison, the uh, Philippian jailer scene took place, um, and then they decided to release Paul and Silas, only uh, Paul and Silas didn't go away quiet. Um, Quietly, they, they made the, the officials come who had treated them unjustly. And basically, what Paul did is he really protected the church in that um, by having them come and do it face to face so that they could acknowledge that what they did was unjust and um, that it can't happen again. And so, at the end of that, they left Philippi chapter 16, verse 40. And it says in chapter 17, verse 1, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis... In Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So this is on the European continent. It's on the, it's where modern day, uh, is it Greece? And he traveled basically 30 miles uh, from uh, Philippi to, Apollo, uh, to Amphipolis, about another 30 miles to Apollonia. And then they came to, Mace, uh, to Thessalonica, which is in the province, all of this is in the province of Macedonia. And he found a synagogue of the Jews. And according to his custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He's in, a, he's in a synagogue, so he's reasoning with the Jews. Wherever Paul went, he went to the Jews first, but he also went to the Greeks. He preached the gospel to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. So he's reasoning with them for three Sabbaths. That does not mean that he only stayed in Thessalonica for three weeks, but it means that he took three of those Sabbaths and he specifically was reasoning with the Jews. So it means that at a, at a minimum, he was there three weeks. Verse three, how was he reasoning with them? He was explaining and giving evidence that Messiah had to suffer. Messiah had to rise again from the dead. And he was saying this Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is Messiah. So he's trying to help the Jews see who their Messiah is. And some of them were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas, 
along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So the, the response in Thessalonica is a small number of Jews responded, large number of Gentiles responded. Now, um, verse 5, but the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. The rest of the Jews who did not respond to it had had enough with what Paul was doing in Thessalonica. And they went after him. They found Jason. And when they did not find Paul and Silas, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities. So now the Jews are dragging fellow Jews who try to tell them about Messiah in front of Gentile authorities. And they are shouting... These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. So the Jews are trying to make a case to the Gentiles that they're upset that the things about Caesar are not being followed. Which the Jews would have hated what Caesar did. But now it's convenient for them to be disgusted with anything that is anti-Caesar because they want to be anti-Jesus, and they've are stirring up the Gentiles. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And they, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So the contrast in Berea is that more Jews responded. They were more noble-minded. But, here come the Jews from Thessalonica again. When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowd. So it's not enough that they were just um, chasing him out of their own city. They had to go down to the next city. And immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there with them. And those who escorted Paul brought him down as far as Athens. They would have sailed with him all the way down towards Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So Paul goes on to Athens, and he stays by himself in Athens, and Silas and Timothy stay back in that region. We know that Timothy will have made his way back to Philippi. Uh, And he's running back and forth from Paul to Philippi all the time in the rest of the second missionary journey. He's constantly bringing support from that church in Philippi to him. Uh, Paul has a very unique relationship with the Philippian church, and that's what he's doing. So you know Paul stays in Athens for the rest of Acts 17. He has his uh, great speech that he gives, his sermon on, on Mars Hill. And then in chapter 18, he gets to Corinth. And he is a little bit beside himself because of everything that had happened as he had to run for his life from Thessalonica. He's very concerned about those believers that were there who had not, uh, he didn't get very much time with. Notice what it says in chapter 18. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And he had met Aquila and Priscilla there. And they were tent makers and that's what he was doing most of his time to provide for himself. And and then he was also in the synagogue on the Sabbath, reasoning with the Jews or trying to persuade them. 
But then, verse 5, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, see, they had stayed back. And when they came, then Paul, look what it says in verse 5. Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. So now he is able and he's in a position where he doesn't have to do the tent thing all the time and work. So what has probably happened is two things that have really helped Paul. Timothy came back and he had been to Philippi and he had been with other churches and he was able to bring support for Paul. So now he didn't have to do the tent making. But also he was beside himself. We're going to find out here in a moment. Very concerned for the Thessalonic, uh, for the Thessalonians. And um, he got word from Timothy that they were fine after all of that persecution that ran him out of town. Now, take that and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, okay? <clears throat> Paul's going to tell us, Paul is now right, okay, we were just in Acts 18 in Corinth. Paul writes 1 Thessalonians from Acts, or from uh, Corinth in Acts 18. Do you understand? So when Timothy joined up with him, that's when he took out pen and paper and he wrote the letter First Thessalonians. Now we're going to find out what was in Paul's mind in Acts 18 when he was in Corinth. Are you with me? Does this make sense? Okay. Chapter 3, verse 1. When we could endure it no longer, we thought it would be best to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. You remember when he went on to Athens and he sent Timothy back? This is what he sent him back to do to encourage them um, as in regards to their faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we've been destined for this so he's they saw all of the afflictions and paul wanted to make sure that they were okay that they were not disturbed by all of those afflictions that were happening as if maybe something wrong happened i mean you preach to us this message about a jewish messiah who is lord and and we believe in him, and now everybody hates us. Is this right? Yes, this is right. That's what he's writing for and sent Timothy back for. Verse 4, For indeed, we, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, remember he's in Corinth, he's making tents, and every Sabbath he's reasoning in the synagogue. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. And so here is now an apostle who's showing his humanness. He was in distress and he was laboring in Corinth the best that he could. But now that the burden is lifted off of him, he completely devoted himself to the word and preaching in Corinth because now he knows they're okay. Um, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul is eager to get back to them if he can. Okay, so there's the setting for the, the letter of First Thessalonians. <clears throat> and remember what we're after. We're, we're after in, in the men of the church to be men who will shepherd their hearts well with the word of God. Just everything that Scott talked about this morning. 
And that in men who would shepherd their hearts well with the word of God would step into their homes and be godly men and godly leaders and bring gospel influence and the influence of the word of God on the relationships that that man has in his home. And then that man who is shepherding his heart and who is caring for his household well, that man steps into the church and he ministers to people. Or that man steps outside of the church and he ministers the gospel evangelistically. And that's what we're talking about in Discipline 3. There is no greater man to look at for ministry to understand what gospel ministry is than the Apostle Paul for us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to watch Paul in chapter 1 and chapter 2 tell us what his ministry was like. I don't know any other section. Perhaps uh, there's some uh, sections, smaller sections in, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians But basically, you have this long section in in chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 where Paul tells them what he was like as a minister of the gospel. There are some things here that um, apply only to Paul. I don't want to make all of this apply to you and, and tell you to go do something that only an apostle could do. But there are so many things in here that um, go beyond being an apostle and just being a, a godly man who's ministering the gospel to others. So... Here we go. We're going to work through quickly. I'm not going to say a lot on every one of these points. You have 11 points here this morning. Um, I promise it'll be a really exciting two hours that we go through this. Um, It won't be two hours. But I'm going to talk to you about what gospel ministry is. Okay, here we go. Number one, gospel ministry reveals God's prior electing love. I'll read from verse 1 of chapter 1 to verse just to set the context. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus is another way of writing Silas's name. He went by both. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And I'm going to pick it up here at verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So here's what's going on first that I want you to see. Gospel ministry reveals God's prior electing love. This is really an amazing thing to say. Um... This is the marriage between God's sovereign work in electing sinners before the foundation of the world and the role and responsibility of a minister to go preach the gospel. And you watch these two things wonderfully collide in God's mind. He says in verse 4, here's what I know. I know God's electing love. Beloved, chosen by God, I know this about you. Verse 5 is the explanation for how he knows it. And what he says is staggering. How does he know it? The word came to you. The gospel came to you. See that? Our gospel did not come to you in word only. What does that mean? It did come in words, didn't it? Paul came preaching those words. That's how I know that God chose you. I came preaching the gospel. But notice that's not his main idea. He says the word, the the gospel did not come in word only, but the gospel came in power 
and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction or with full conviction. Now, you got to hang with me on this verse because this is really important. There is a comparison clause at the end of verse 5. Just as. You see that? Just as. That means he's going to kind of draw an equal sign between what he just said and the next thing he's going to say. So the gospel came to you in word, but not in word only. It came in, in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction, just as. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, just as you know that the gospel is powerful. See, that would be an equal sign between power, Holy Spirit, and full conviction, and that just as you know the gospel is those things. He doesn't say that. What does he say? The gospel came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction, just as what? You know what kind of men we were among you. So that tells you now what Paul is after. Yes, the gospel came in words to Thessalonica, and it was a, a way of revealing God's electing love. But what Paul is really after as the explanation for why he knows that they have been chosen by God is you, you know what kind of men we were among you. What kind of men were we among you? We were men of power, men marked by the Holy Spirit, and men who came with full conviction. Now listen, does the gospel have power? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, right? That's good theology. Do, do, do we need the Holy Spirit linked with the gospel? Yes, we do. Does the gospel bring some kind of conviction? Yes. That's great theology, but it's not taught in this verse. This verse says that the way that Paul knows that God chose them was that, yes, the gospel came in word, but the gospel also came in the power of these men and in the Holy Spirit fullness of these men and in the full conviction that Paul had, that Silas had, to come and to preach the gospel to these people. That's how he knows God chose them. That's an amazing thing to say. He's showing that, look, think of it this way. God in eternity past, Ephesians 1, 4, right? Chooses, elects. Now, how does that reveal itself actually in time? Men of power, men full of the Holy Spirit, and men fully convinced run into the rebel world preaching the gospel. And it reveals what? Where God in eternity past made choices. Guys, gospel ministry is huge. So important. Look what, look what God's revealing through it. If men run out into the world, Christian men, and do ministry that is in their own power, with their own cleverness, and they're not really convinced about what they're doing because it's a fad, it's, it's, it's okay what we're doing. What is that going to reveal in their message? God is pleased to marry his sovereignty and eternity past with man's responsibility to go preach the gospel, and they're not at odds with one another. 
the, the responsibility of man with full conviction and power and being full of the Holy Spirit and going and preaching the gospel actually reveals where God's electing love manifests itself. It doesn't cause it. God caused it, right? But it reveals it. So that's a staggering claim to make. And um, it's right there before us. So what is gospel ministry? Number one, gospel ministry reveals God's prior electing love. Number two, gospel ministry... Multi- uh, I'm sorry, I've scratched that out of mind. What's it say for yours? It results in fearless, joyful, and exemplary imitators. Verses 6 and 7. Watch this. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, he's not saying, um, I offered you one pattern to imitate, and Jesus offered you another pattern to imitate, and you became an imitator of me and of Jesus. Two different things. He means what? 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, Follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's life was so much in alignment with Jesus that he could say it that way. Follow me as I follow Christ. So they are imitators. Verse 6. How, how were they imitators? In what way did they imitate? Well, he says in verse 6, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Lots of tribulation going on. You remember what we read in Acts 17 about how Paul gets chased out of town? And Paul doesn't talk about in Acts how the believers were impacted by it, but in 1 Thessalonians 3, he talked about his concern, right? There was a lot of affliction that they were going through also. And they received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So here they are um, getting all kinds of affliction all over them, tribulation being brought to their life, maybe losing jobs. Who knows what happened, what kind of persecution there was. And yet they're joyful? That's because it's not their joy that they have. Whose joy do they have? What does it say? with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit's joy that he gives to the believer is not based on circumstances being good. It's just his joy in this world. And, I, and I, this is a great verse, guys, for you to keep in front of you because it, it presents to you the accurate picture that you are, uh, you, you, this world is, is full of rebels against God enemies of God, and what we do with the gospel is we, we live behind enemy lines. And you're going to see this. God, the judge, is coming. Wrath is coming. And we run behind enemy lines and we preach the word. But we don't just preach the word. We need to be men who are responding and, and, and influenced by God's power. That we too, as we take the gospel to the ends of the earth in ways that are appropriate for us, we need to have fullness of the Spirit for us. That's going to look different than fullness of the Spirit for an apostle. And we need to be fully convinced as we run behind enemy lines preaching the gospel. And as we preach that gospel, God's electing love will be revealed in our day of whom he has chosen. They will receive the word in as behind enemy lines with lots of tribulation, lots of trouble. It can be easy for us to think that we're preaching the gospel and everybody should just, this should just be fine. Everybody will get along with that and there'll be no trouble. Um, but how many of you were saved from in and out of your family and your setting and there was no conflict? Um, 
I mean, I, I can remember when, when, when God saved me, the, the first morning I told my unbelieving mom, um, there was immediately um, lines drawn and we knew who was on which side. Um, and uh, friends and family and others. I mean, this is, this is an accurate um, depiction of where gospel ministry is and what it's like. We're not in Disneyland selling cotton candy to people who want it. We're not. And so when we go and we, we tell them God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, you're telling them, I got some cotton candy for you. But we go into enemy lines and we're telling them the judge is coming and you don't have any hope apart from Jesus. Repent. Turn away from what you've made of yourself apart from him and believe in him. And that message does not go over well. It just doesn't. Except for those whom God has prepared and they receive it with joy and they become imitators of the ones who brought the gospel. Now watch why they became imitators. Verse 7, you became imitators so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So throughout that whole region, this is probably within a matter of three months, those brand new believers in Thessalonica had become an example to all of the believers in that region. Uh, so what did they become examples of? Of how you receive the word in tribulation with joy. They were a good example of that. So, gospel ministry results in fearless, joyful, exemplary imitators. That's what it needs to result in. So, again, we're in a, we're in a war zone in this world. There are rebels against God everywhere. And what do we find out so far? God, in eternity past, has made sovereign selections. How are they going to come to light? In time, by men with power and Holy Spirit and full conviction running into those enemy lines, preaching the gospel, and they will receive the word in that tribulation that comes with much joy. Um, third description of gospel ministry. Number three, gospel ministry is multiplied quickly by new believers. Look what happened. Verse 8. This is Paul's explanation of their exemplary lives in verse 7. Um, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. For, let me explain what I mean, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. These are brand new believers brand new believers in Thessalonica and the word of the Lord blasted forth from them like a trumpet blast. That's the idea in verse, uh, verse eight, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. They're so young in Christ and they are so unashamed in Christ. If you, if you're going to make a, if you're going to play the trumpet, I, I played the trumpet for 14 years. If you're going to play the trumpet, it's not for somebody who's shy. A trumpet is not like a little, I don't know, it's not like a flute. You can play that really soft and just kind of quietly to yourself. But a trumpet's loud. 
And it, it's not for the, the shy. They, they, they weren't ashamed of what they were as these new believers. They sounded forth the faith that they had in Christ. It says in verse 8, in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth. In every place, like a trumpet blast. I can remember, I, my best friend lived probably like, I don't know, 17 houses down on the same street. And he played French horn. And I played trumpet. <laughs> and when we were in junior high, we would, remember the, the old phone, the heavy one that's hooked on the wall? I'd call him, dial, and say, hey, go out in your backyard. Okay. Boom. And I'd get my trumpet out, and I'd point down the street, and I'd just blast as loud as I could, and I would wait. And pretty soon, I'd hear his French horn coming back. <laughs> okay, so it's much cooler than that, but that's what's going on here. They, they have sounded forth the word of the Lord, um, not just in their region where they're at, but everywhere Paul has been. Um, your faith toward God has gone forth so that to this extent, here's how much your faith toward God has gone forth. We don't, we don't have any need to say anything. I mean, we can't add to it. Um, they basically have silenced Paul. Paul doesn't have anything else to add. Can you imagine that? They have been so effective in putting forth what they believe in the regions where they've been at that the Apostle Paul doesn't have anything to add to it. So gospel ministry is multiplied quickly by new believers. Um, there is a huge advantage when someone first comes to Christ. When they first come to Christ, who's their life? Who surrounds them primarily in their life? A bunch of Christians? Probably not. But what? A bunch of unbelievers. What's the best thing that could happen for the sake of the gospel when that one believes? Tell everybody. Tell everybody you know. Because everybody that one knows is probably unbelievers. I can remember when I first got saved, one of the older guys that discipled me, we were at a basketball game, watching a, at my community college. And, um, and he, goes, he goes, hey, do you know this guy? And I'm like, no, I don't know. He goes, hey, tell him what happened to you. I don't even know him. He goes, I know, but tell him. And he just had me start telling. And so here I am turning around. I don't, I don't look, here's what I know. Um, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. I have forgiveness of sins. And um, I'm going to heaven because I believe in him. That's what I know. Hi. Um, and I, that's what I did. And it was so helpful for me to take advantage of the people that were around me, uh, take advantage, not of the people, but of, the, of, the, of, the, of being positioned around unbelievers. Um, that's one of the things to, cap, to capitalize on. Wherever you are when you become a believer, just start, just open your mouth. Are you going to say everything right? No, but just open your mouth. Let the gospel sound forth. Encourage new believers to sound forth what they do know of the Lord wherever they are, and the gospel spreads rapidly that way. Fourth description of gospel ministry. Number four, gospel ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. Verse nine. Here comes the report. This is why Paul has no need to say anything. Here's what they report. Well, they themselves, all those people who have heard from you, they themselves report about us two things. 
they report about us, number one, what kind of reception we had with you. And they report how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So again, Paul is not just saying, hey, here's what they've heard about you, that you repented. Here's, he, he's adding to this all the time in First Thessalonians 1 and 2. They've also heard how you and, and Silas and I, how we just got along. They heard, the report is, how we were received by you, how we were welcomed by you. That made an impact. They've never seen anything like that. That strangers would come into a town, preach a message that is everything against everything that they have ever stood for, and yet be so welcomed. That's the point in verse 9. They themselves report about us what kind of reception or entrance we had with you, that, that you just took us in. That's stunning people everywhere through Macedonia, Achaia, and in all places. And the report goes out that you turned to God from idols. So two things here. What the report says, this is how we were received. And the report is that you repented. You were received and you repented. Now, gospel ministry cannot separate those two things. But you cannot be satisfied with, and you can't be satisfied with just one. And this is too often the case. Um, that, that a church will just want to be received by unbelievers. Right? Go do good deeds among them. Invite them to church. And we'll, we'll do a seeker kind of thing. And, and they'll receive us. And, and, and the report will go out that we're a friendly church. Paul was not satisfied with that. Because he labored not to be merely received. Did he want to be received? Yes. But he wasn't laboring merely for that. What was he laboring for? What, what did it matter if he was received but they didn't repent toward God? Do you think Paul would have been happy with that? Um, don't be happy with that. Don't, don't be content merely with being liked by unbelievers. But labor for nothing short of repentance, that they would turn to God from idols. Um, gospel ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. Um, fifth description, gospel ministry results in a desire for God above all else. It results in a desire for God above all else. Look at the way verse 9 ends and verse 10 goes on. He's going to describe what their turning to God looked like. Here's, here's their repentance. And how you repented from idols. To serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Okay, their lives in repentance became oriented around God the Father serving him and waiting for his son. So repentance was all about God, God the Father to them and God the Son. Uh, whatever they were before as pagans, they now found themselves drawn to the Father to serve him. And they found themselves waiting for Jesus, his son. Life is, for them now, in repentance, is occupied, I'll say it another way, life for them now is occupied with two people, God the Father and God the Son, serving God the Father, waiting for Jesus, His Son, to come. 
Life for them now is occupied with two activities, serving and waiting. Serving God the Father, waiting for Jesus the Son. And then he describes who this Jesus is. This is awesome. Look at this. And to wait for his son. Now notice these three words. In a, he kind of tells it backwards. He tells the, the gospel backwards. His son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. He died, was raised from the dead, and he ascended on high to heaven. That's what he's, how he describes it, but he describes it backwards, right? The, who is this son? He's the one who's coming from heaven. We're waiting for him to come from there. He's the one that he raised when he died. And his name is Jesus. And who is this one? This Jesus, he's the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. He suffered the wrath of God in their place at the cross already. But that does not mean that that Jesus does not have wrath yet to come and pour out. Obviously, he's going to come to the earth and he is going to pour out his wrath. But the believer has already escaped that and yet will escape that wrath when Jesus comes. So here's your message again. Here's the the picture that Paul portrays in chapter one of gospel ministry. Think on this. We live among a bunch of wrath deserving people. So wrath deserving are they that God is going to come in Jesus and he is going to pour out his wrath on them. But 2,000 years ago, in time, Jesus died. Jesus was raised from the dead, and he was ascended uh, to heaven so that he could taste that wrath for everyone who would believe in him. And then, in time, gospel ministry men with power and with Holy Spirit and with full conviction ran into enemy lines among all of those deserving of wrath and proclaimed in word what Jesus did. But they didn't just preach it in word. They came as men of power, and God's electing love is revealed. They received the word in much tribulation, and they had joy in the midst of it, and they even became examples and imitators of those gospel ministers. And gospel ministry expanded widely and quickly all across the European continent. That's gospel ministry. There's nobody better to look at outside other than Jesus than Paul. Uh, what an amazing gospel minister. It was, gospel ministry results in a desire for God above all else to serve him and to wait for his son. Yes. Yeah. his second coming yeah waiting for him to come and and uh with the mention of wrath in verse 10 uh, it's the son who is coming from heaven and there is wrath to come and he is the one who rescues us from it uh, now he rescued us from it by suffering on the cross in our place right um but like like the, the, the scriptures will speak of our salvation in terms of past, present, and future. He saved us. He is saving us. He will save us. Um, you could speak of the, 
the wrath in a past and a future kind of way. He suffered the wrath in my place already. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet when he comes to pour out his wrath, we will find that in that we've been rescued from the wrath that's coming. Um, So um, he is definitely coming. And that's what they're waiting for. Paul taught them in the limited time that he was there, he's coming. Right? There's amazing eschatology in this letter, chapter 4 and chapter 5. He taught him a lot about eschatology. Did you know eschatology is divisive? It's dangerous. We we should just leave those things alone. Paul took these brand new believers and he discipled them in eschatology. The end. He's coming. Let me tell you how he's coming. There's going to be a rapture. And then there's this thing called um, uh, the day of the Lord in chapter 5. He wasn't ashamed of any of that. We shouldn't be either. Number six. But that's, that's a lesson for another time. Number six, gospel ministry doesn't lose courage in the face of opposition. Verse one and two, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Gospel ministry does not lose courage in the face of opposition. When did Paul get opposition? It was when he was in Philippi. He suffered and was mistreated. He and Silas were in Philippi. That's what he says. That's what happened in Acts uh, 16. So the fact that Paul faced opposition doesn't mean that Paul was doing something wrong. See, that would be the way that worldly people would think. We keep trying to preach the gospel, but we just get rejected and beat up. We must be doing something wrong, so let's tweak it so we don't get beat up. But in the face of opposition, Paul still pressed on with courage. Look what it says here. After, notice how the verse begins and notice how the verse ends. After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, that's how it begins. Look how it ends. Much opposition. What's in the middle of that? Suffering and being mistreated in Philippi and the verse ends in much opposition. What's in between that? What does Paul say? We had Boldness, the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. It didn't matter if it, things were going, just unraveling around him. If it didn't, doesn't matter if he had just fled from one city and they wanted to kill him. And in the rearview mirror are people chasing him down. In the next place he goes and he meets opposition again, it doesn't matter. He just has courage. He just does not stop preaching the gospel. Gospel ministry doesn't lose courage in the face of opposition. Um, That's what you do when you take the gospel behind enemy lines, where we live, right? The thing that's puzzling, I think, for us, maybe it won't be puzzling for much longer, I don't know, but the thing I think that's puzzling for us is there just isn't a lot of opposition. Where we live, but in other parts of the world, they cut off the heads of people who believe what you and I believe, right? We're going to meet those precious saints someday who lost their head and who were tortured and crucified. Um, But for us, when there's no opposition or little opposition, mild opposition, I, I think there's two things we've got to be thinking about that could be a possible explanation. Number one, it could be that we live in a pocket of the world, in a pocket of history in which society is tolerant. Right? Could be. That could be one of the reasons why 
we um, don't face a lot of opposition because they tolerate us. It also could be that perhaps um, are we shrinking back from saying the things that are really hard? And I would appeal to the example of Paul in Acts 20 when he's talking with the Ephesian elders and he says, I, I didn't shrink back from telling you anything that was profitable. I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He didn't leave out the hard things that were, to, that were hard to say. He didn't leave them out. That could be a reason why there's not a lot of opposition is we maybe sometimes we're too selective on the good things, um, the nice things to say about what God has done. And he, he loves sinners. And look, don't stop saying that. But if they don't understand that they are rebels against God, and if they don't understand that there is a wrath that is coming, why would they want to turn from what they are? If a doctor knows you have cancer and that it's going to kill you, it does you no good for him to just tell you, give you compliments and nice things. You know, I think the rest, you, you seem to be pretty healthy. Otherwise, you would have no reason to accept his care unless you knew what was really wrong with you. They have no reason to turn from what's really wrong with them unless you tell them. So, gospel ministry doesn't lose courage in the face of opposition. Number seven, gospel ministry must flow from pure motives. Now, Paul is going to make a broader point here about pleasing God and God being the focal point of his ministry. But he begins in verse three by telling us where his exhortation is sourced, is not sourced out of. Our exhortation does not come from three things. It doesn't come from error. It doesn't come from impurity. It doesn't come by way of deceit. Um, gospel ministry cannot contain errors. It needs to be the truth. You need to know the truth. That doesn't mean you need to be able to say all of the truths. But whatever it is that you do say, it needs to be true. It needs to be the truth, right? Um, this is what's hard about it. You can uh, be sharing the gospel with somebody, and the thing that you're thinking the most is, how do I say it all? They need to hear it all. And so you're in a moment, and you're just, you're just rambling, and, and, and you, you don't have an outline in your head, and you're just, you don't know what to say, or maybe you talk yourself out of saying anything because you, you, know, you know that you both don't have enough time to say it all, and, and so you can talk yourself out of it because you're thinking they need to know everything right now. Is that how God saved you? You needed to know it all right now. <laughs> no, what did, you, what, did you, what did you know? You knew the key pieces of the truth that were given to you. And God, ever since then, has been filling in all of the other truths in your life. Right? So just go back and remember what was it like for you. You, you just needed to hear some key truths. So make sure you know the key ones and make sure that you can speak them truthfully. But gospel ministry cannot come by way of error. It can't be marked by impure living. Paul was not an immoral or impure man who came. And this one's important too. Gospel ministry cannot come by way of deceit. Um, the, the phrase that I would use for that is bait and switch. Gospel ministry cannot come by baiting people with one thing so that they come to it thinking, oh, I know what that is. That sounds interesting. That sounds good. Only later to take that away and say, but this is what I'm really after with you. Gospel ministry cannot do that. You can't entice them in 
with the nice things about and all the benefits that you want them to hear about whatever it is you're saying and then switch it up on them and say, but this is what I'm really after. Gospel ministry just lays it all out in front. Paul doesn't shrink back from any of it. It can't come by way of deceit. Um, So gospel ministry must flow from the truth and from pure motives. Number eight, gospel ministry concerns itself with God's approval alone. This is Paul's main point. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Let me give you four positive statements here. Notice these uh, four key positive statements, and I'll give you some really negative ones. So these are key statements about that help describe what gospel ministry is about. The first one is in verse four. We have been approved by God. That's literally, we have been tested by God and found to be genuine, the real thing. This is the idea of refining with fire. You, you take an object that you want uh, to use and you put it into the fire, not because you want to destroy it, not because you want to mar it and scar it. You put it in the fire because you want to purify it so that it will be everything you want it to be. That's what Paul says. He was tested. He was approved. And look what it says. He was approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. I like to say it this way. Paul was tested to be entrusted with the gospel. Tested to be entrusted. It's a good testing. It may be hard. It may be refining, but it's good. You come out on the other side to be ready to be entrusted with the gospel. That's a very positive thing. And it's all about God. God is the one who did this. In verse 4, we have been approved by God. Look at the next positive statement that's made. Not as pleasing men, but as and this is implied again, as pleasing God who examines our hearts. So what is he saying gospel ministry is like? We're after pleasing the God who examines our hearts. You want to know what gospel ministry needs to be marked by? It should be marked by you wanting to please God and he's examining your heart. Not just your deeds that you do, but who you are inwardly before him. Here's the third key statement in verse 5. God is witness. Paul labored in gospel ministry with thinking primarily of which set of eyes upon him? God's. God's watching me. Gospel ministry needs to be held in check by that. And that's what he says. God is witness. And then the last one in verse 6, apostles of Christ. Paul was um, one of the apostles, capital A of Christ. Apostle means sent one. Um, he was sent out by Jesus Christ. Now, just think about all of that. This is all about God. Gospel ministry for Paul was all about God. God is the one who approved him to entrust him with the gospel. God is the one who examines his heart. God is the one who is witness. And Jesus is the one who sent him out. Gospel ministry wasn't about Paul. It wasn't Paul's idea. It wasn't his beginning. It wasn't his, it's not being sustained by him. It is all about God who started it, is watching it as it goes. That's what gospel ministry is about. Now, let me give you some negatives here. Watch this. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak 
not as pleasing men. Guys, when does gospel ministry turn sour and grow moldy? When we're after pleasing men. You do what you do in gospel ministry because you just want to please people. That's when it gets really ugly. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Here's another one, verse 5. For we never came with flattering speech. When does gospel ministry get really gross? When gospel ministers just flatter people. Um, it can also get really disgusting with a pretext for greed. That when, when what you're really after is just an opportunity to gain from these people. Verse 6, gospel ministry gets ugly when we seek glory from men. We want to be seen to be weighty in their eyes. Paul had a reason to be viewed as weighty. Why? He was an apostle of Christ and he has authority. He says, we might have asserted our authority. If anybody on a gospel mission could assert authority, who, who would it be? An apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the capital A apostles. And what does he say? I tried at all costs to not do that. Um, so gospel ministry concerns itself with God's approval alone. So labor in your ministry, guys, with a, a desire for God's approval upon you more than anything else. Open your mouth thinking that God is watching, God is seeing my heart. Um, and put what men might think of you as far away as you can. Number nine, gospel ministry knows how to be gentle. Gospel ministry knows how to be gentle. Verse 7, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Gospel ministry knows um, when to be gentle, when to be tender like a nursing mother caring for her children. Paul knew how to do that. Can I show you a couple things? And then Scott will do a... When, when Scott does First Thessalonians 5, he's going to go into this more so. But let me show you this same apostle. Paul here saying to these brand new believers, I was among you like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children, right? Okay, now go to Galatians chapter 1. Let me show you the same apostle. Galatians 1 verse 6. He says to those believers from his first missionary journey, he had planted the church then, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. That's a strong, strong statement. He needs to be condemned, that one. As we have said before, I'll say it again. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Paul knew also how to lay it on. To say what really needed to be said at other times. Uh, drop down to chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas came to, and this is Peter, right? 
When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. See, there's the fear of man and pleasing men. The rest of the Jews joined in, in, joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So he knew how to step in and not be that gentle mother nursing like a, a baby. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Can you imagine um, a, a tender, a mom tenderly caring for her child? Um, who bewitched you? You fool. It's like, no, you, Paul knew when to be that, but then he also knew when to be um, strong. Look at chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 19. My children, he still thinks of them as children. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. Paul didn't want to be this way towards them. He wanted to be gentle towards them. Let me give you an example, another example in Philippians chapter 4. Watch this. Go to Philippians 4, 1 through 5. And let's watch Paul put on the gentleness. Okay, so I just want you to see that one man is able to be just about anything he needs to be uh, in ministry. Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, beloved, beloved, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm, my beloved. See how he's talking to them already? I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. So here is the apostle again, being very gentle, urging, caring. There are several other, you can look at, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. It's another one. But just turn over to 1 Thessalonians 5. I'll let you look at the verse that Scott's going to do. Watch this. This is so important in gospel ministry, guys. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. We urge you, brethren. Now watch, here it comes. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. And help the weak. And be patient with all of them. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that Paul recognized that there are different... People will go through different seasons of faithfulness. Sometimes they'll be unruly, undisciplined. What do they need? A warning. Admonishment. Admonish that one. What if, in verse 14, they go through a season and they're faint-hearted? What do they need? Encouragement. What if they're weak? They need what? Help. 
And it doesn't matter what any of them are, and if there's 500 other categories, what are you supposed to be with all of them? Patient. So as you're admonishing and warning, be patient. And as you're encouraging, be patient. As you're helping, be patient. So the point is, Paul knew when to be gentle. But he was gentle based on the kind of people they were. They needed to be gentle, or they needed his gentleness towards them. Um, But at other times, he knew when to give warnings, didn't he? Why did he know he needed to give a warning? Because he saw something undisciplined in them, something dangerous. When your child is on the curb and you've taught them over and over and over, you don't leave the curb and run into the street. And you see the car coming around the corner fast and your child has taken a step off the the curb. How do you talk to your child? Sweetie, little one, I have something really precious to say. You don't do that. Why? Because it's wrong. It doesn't make any sense. And the same thing happens in ministry. The gospel minister needs to be able to look, and I'm not just talking about pastors and elders, guys, okay? We're talking about each other here. When I say gospel minister, I mean one who ministers the gospel. You need to be able to read and ask good questions to be able to assess what is the condition of the one in front of you. Why? Why are you doing that? Because you care about them, because you love them, and you need to know what to give them. Um, What's hard is when sometimes we get into a, maybe a season of ministry when we've only got one thing in our belt and it's the gun. And so that's really great when you come across the undisciplined ones and the unruly ones. You bring the gun out and you give them the warnings. But when somebody's faint-hearted, that's not what they need. But you need to know what they are, right? So you need to be able to have multiple tools on your tool belt that you can grab at any point when you notice and recognize what a person is so that you can give them what they need. Does that make sense? And Paul knew in 1 Thessalonians, back in chapter 2, he knew how to be gentle. Number 10, gospel ministry. Balances gospel proclamation and selfless love. Gospel ministry balances gospel proclamation and selfless love. Uh, Verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Look at verse 8. Gospel ministry um, isn't just about proclaiming the gospel. It is. If you do not proclaim the gospel to people in gospel ministry, you can't call it gospel ministry. It's ministry. It's serving them somehow. It's something, but it's not gospel ministry. You must proclaim it. Like Paul says in the middle of verse 8, we imparted to you the gospel of God. We proclaimed to you the gospel, verse 9. But gospel ministry is more than that. It's, it's also affection. It's selfless affection, and it's gospel proclamation. Look at how verse 8 is written. How does it begin? Having so fond affection for you. How does it end? How does that verse end? You had become very dear to us. Do you see the affection everywhere? And then what is in the middle? 
we imparted not only our lives to you, but the gospel. Paul gave himself away and he imparted the gospel to them. And then verse 9 is the explanation of how he did that. For explanation, you, let me explain. You recall, guys, our, our labor, our hardship, our working night and day so as to not be a burden to any one of you. Um, he could have said, you know, hey, I'm this apostle sent out by Jesus Christ into the world to preach the gospel. I have a right in that authority to receive from you whatever you might give me that would help me to do that. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. He could have said that. And it was right. And in some situations, in some places, he did. He took money all the time from the Philippians. But whenever he went someplace new, what did he not do? He didn't assert himself as an authority of, of Jesus. He says that at the end of verse 6, right? Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But what did he do? We imparted our lives to you in the gospel. You would become dear to us. And you remember how we sacrificed ourselves for you. We labored at night so that you, we wouldn't be a burden to you so that during the day, then we could preach the gospel to you, proclaim that gospel to you. So number 10, gospel ministry balances gospel proclamation and selfless love. Guys, do you know which one you're strong in and which one you're weak in? Because it takes both of them. There needs to be gospel proclamation, but there needs to be selfless affection for people. And you, most of us are, are really strong on the one and weaker on the other. Some of us love and just there's no trouble in proclaiming truth and the gospel and whatever it is that's needed. And we're not as good it being selfless in our affection for people, being fond of you and, and expressing that and showing that. Others of us are just the opposite of that, right? We, we just love on people all the time and they, they walk away knowing that we love them. But whether or not we actually in boldness proclaimed to them the gospel and truth, uh, well, that maybe wasn't as strong. Do you know which way you are? You need to know which way you are so that you can compensate and balance both of them. Paul's ministry was heavily weighted with both. And it wasn't on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays he showed affection. And on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays he proclaimed the gospel. It's not balanced that way. And Sunday was the Lord's Day, and so I don't know what they did. Um, It's being that in every conversation. The right balance of affection and proclamation. Okay? Lastly, gospel ministry requires excellent behavior from all. I love how he ends this. Look at verse 10 to 12. You are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. That was all about Paul, wasn't it? Look how he described himself. You are witnesses. You saw this. You know our behavior. And so is God. God knows this. How devoutly we behaved how uprightly we behaved, how blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. To what extent, Paul, were you exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of them? Well, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God, of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul was very concerned as he was on his gospel mission that his life would exhibit exemplary behavior, excellent behavior. But he also exhorted them that their behavior be what? That they would walk, that they would live in a manner that was worthy of the God 
who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Just think on that. He is a God who is a king who has glory. And his subjects of that kingdom and of his glory need to match his character. They need to be worthy in their living of the way he is as God. And so Paul was constantly there exhorting them, imploring them, encouraging them that their lives needed to be excellently lived out as well. So gospel ministry, whenever it is present, there, there, there should be no one who is exempt from excellent behavior. Either the one preaching or the one receiving. Everyone is being exhorted towards living a life that is worthy of the God and of the kingdom and of his glory. Um, all life is supposed to be lived in excellent um, behavior. So there are your 11 marks or descriptions of gospel ministry from the Apostle Paul. Like I said, I, d- I don't know of a section in Scripture that is more dense than this. Uh, I usually take this in years past, and I do this in two Saturdays. I do chapter 1, and I do chapter 2. I wanted to do it all in one this year, um, so we didn't cover everything. I encourage you guys, go slowly through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and really think on how Paul describes himself how he describes he and Silas, how he describes uh, how they were received. Uh, Just really dig into the kind of gospel ministry that Paul uh, engaged in. All right. We will um, be on again in two weeks. Today is the 7th. February 21, uh, Jacob Hatla is going to teach, one of our elders. And he's going to teach on Proverbs 4.23. Um, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the streams of life. Um, so he'll take us back to Discipline 1. And um, that you don't want to miss that. That, is, that lesson that he does uh, out of that is excellent. You guys need to be here for that. And then after that, in March, um, Scott will bring to us 1 Thessalonians 5.14 that we just read earlier. That'll be excellent. So you can see we're on the downhill side. I mean, uh, it's going to start rolling, and before you know it, it's going to be over. So, guys, keep persevering. You're doing great. I mean, I I can only see what's going on in my group. But, um, guys, just keep doing what you're doing. Don't give up. Don't grow faint-hearted in your disciplines. If you're discouraged in your Bible reading, talk to somebody. Um, Share it with somebody. Um, If you need somebody just to even read with you, I, I know this may seem weird, but if you don't know if what you're doing is right and how you're reading, am I, am I going about this the right way? Uh, am I exercising the spiritual discipline rightly? Get with somebody who does know and can help you, and maybe they could just show you how. Read a passage out loud together. That's only helpful. That's not weird. That's helpful. Um, so don't, don't grow faint-hearted in this. Uh, you guys are doing great. Just keep pressing on, okay? Yes, M.
I think I, I don't think there's necessarily anything. I mean, who would you want to? I think there's a danger in that. I think there's good. Who would you want? To, we're we're going to be going in soon into a new neighborhood uh, two miles north from here. Apartment complexes everywhere. Uh, and, and we are going to have an opportunity to do something in a location that we actually are rooted in that we haven't done before. And that is go and, and reach out to those people. Um, we should all be doing that, I mean, wherever we live. But if you're going to have somebody kind of spearhead that, what kind of person would you want to be? I think you'd want somebody who's strong in evangelism and, and gospel proclamation, but not, you wouldn't want to say to that person, it doesn't matter if you're not gentle, right? Or it doesn't matter if you don't love people. Um, you want somebody who's gifted in those kinds of areas to do that. Somebody who does hospital visitation, what do you want? You want somebody who just is the best at loving people. But you don't want to say to that one, it doesn't matter if you don't ever really bring up the gospel when you go. I mean, no, you want both in, in everyone. But I think there's a, a legitimate way to acknowledge a person's strengths and weaknesses and maybe kind of move them in a place as long as you're laboring with that guy to be in balance. Don't um, diminish his giftedness. I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but you know, labor for the balance. Am I getting at what you were kind of talking about? Yes. That's not a convincing answer. <laughs> 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 it, it, it sounds like a topic that maybe doesn't have any like really defined things. I'm just trying to get the heart of um, in terms of balance. Um, you know, just something that we constantly remind ourselves of that we cannot kind of be comfortable in our strengths. Be on this other side of things because they're on both essential in whatever you're doing. Um, but I don't know, I, I just find it all too often in church format uh, that people even move to places and kind of forget even acknowledging that the other end is just as important. Yeah, I think you said it well. I think you want to be in and just keep it in front of you all the time. God wires everybody to do what they do, how they do, the way they do it. Um, they're better at some things than other things, and, and we shouldn't make an apology for that. But at the same time, whatever your weaknesses are, especially in terms of what we talked about here, in terms of gospel proclamation or uh, loving people, boy, you got to have both of them. You need to be checking yourself all the time. So, yeah. Mark? How can, how can the, the church uh, promote... How do we do that? Quickly, try. Quickly. <laughs> <laughs> do you, yeah. Do you, um. There you go. Um, do you, can you guess which group concerns me as an elder more? Neither of those groups, I think, would be the smallest. 
Yeah, I, I think, um, I think you need to have leadership, whether it's in small groups or over ministries, like you know, um, Bible studies and, and whatever. You need to have people who are thinking about this and are aware of it, so that they can keep it in front of people, so that um, we don't just gravitate towards people that are just like us. Um, and for those, it, but that's not to say it, it, is it wrong for people who just really love to debate and proclaim truth to each other? Is it wrong for them to hang out? No. But I'd want to really exhort them to balance themselves out. Let me, let me give an example in my own parenting of how ministry in, in my own parenting, um, I have to constantly work on this. If I see my kid um, down and dejected over something that happened, nine times out of ten, what I want to do is just say, here's a solution, A, B, and C, go do it. And that's what I end up doing most of the time until I see the look on their face that reveals to me I completely missed them. And it's not that that solution is bad and I shouldn't tell them. But what, I try to, what I've tried to work on in my parenting with my kids is when they say that, to linger there with them a little bit. Tell me, tell me more. What, what do you, tell me more about it. And, and it doesn't mean that everything they say is good. I mean, they can just, they, at that point, they're, they painted themselves into a dark corner of the world and there's no hope. But I'm asking them what it's like from their perspective. I'm trying to go where they are. And then I've forced myself to say to them at times, be, you know, and I'm chomping at the bit the whole time because I've got the answers. I know the answers. Convinced of it. I know the answers. And I forced myself to say, buddy, I'm so sorry. That's hard. That's really hard. Um, difficult things happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think to not miss the people and just really care for them in the midst of those conversations is really important and helpful. Jared. Just is kind of the in first of the first fourteen chapter five is being an example, kind of just knowing what people are at. Yeah. Because, I mean, even like Paul writes in Galatians because they had strength in the churches several times. The Thessalonians, even chapter 1, is all about it. And essentially, he's writing that to comfort them. Yeah. He does give them a And he does, he didn't know how they were going to go. Yeah. And they're wondering back. And they're wondering if they were here to do. And maybe so, the lexicon happy guys, maybe mm-hmm. put that aside. Because they know that people need their time and their love. And maybe some of the folks in the drums were that at the end for some purpose. I love them. Yeah, that's good too. Jonathan. 
That's a great question. And, and you'll find, Paul, if he gives those three descriptions there, and they're not exhaustive, obviously, but you'll find in one conversation with people that sometimes they will weave in and out of all three of them. There's an unruliness in what's going on in their thinking. There, there's, there's some rebellion going on in there. And at the same time, they're faint-hearted and they're just weak. And in one conversation, you'll see a person weave in and out of that. And you have to know in one conversation how to respond to each one of those things. And so you shouldn't be you shouldn't have a monolithic one solution only for a conversation. You really have to be reading the thoughts that are coming from them, how they're thinking. Um, but I, I, I know a dear guy um, that for, for the last five years that I've known him is, is a guy who I think is just, I think he's marked by faint-heartedness. I think that's primarily his bent. Um, and I think there are times when we're faint-hearted because of some undisciplined, unruly things in our lives. And so my care for him whenever I'm with him is primarily encouragement. And, and let's talk about um, Jay uh, Adams is a, a counselor, a biblical counselor guy. He's got this little paperback book that's, that's, uh, that's, that's title is Encouragement is Not Enough. It's a provocative title. Do you know that book at all, Raymond? Have you seen that one by Jay Adams? Um, anyway, it is. His point is um, this very thing that we're talking about. We use encouragement for everything. I just want to be encouraging. Let me encourage you. Well, look, you don't. The, the guy who's um, committing adultery doesn't need encouragement. What, what is encouragement? You're trying to give them courage. To do what's right. So you offer encouragement to the one who's trying to do what's right, but is wondering if they're going to make it. They need encouragement. And the one who is going the wrong direction doesn't need encouragement. We use the word encouragement like it, like we mean, um, I'm exhorting you to stop doing that and go this way. But that's not what encouragement means. Um, encouragement is validates you're on the right path. I just take another step. Trust God. You can do it. Um, so you're going to have to, you know, with, with some people, they're, they're just, they are more bent, and so your, your counsel to them is going to be more one thing. But there are times when I've, I've said to my friend, how many times have we talked about this? You know, have, does this sound familiar again? Why, why do you not remember that? Um, stop it. <laughs> you know, just, you know, to say that we need that too. So, um, yeah, you just have to. The more you know somebody, the, the I think the clearer it is. Um, the hard one is when you don't really know people very well, and you're trying to figure out is this what they're marked by? Or and some people are different with different people they meet with. I'll have elders will find this out as we have one guy who's will discover is meeting with three elders, and we but we thought we were the only one. And when he meets with me, everything's great. And we talk about cool stuff and great stuff, but when he meets with that elder, his whole world is falling apart. And like, wow, he's not faint-hearted with me, but he's faint-hearted with, you know, and so, you know, go figure that out. you got to talk amongst yourself as elders <laughs> sometimes. But anyway, let me, let me close some prayer, and then if any of you want to stay around and talk some more, we can do that. I appreciate you guys. These are great questions. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, thank you so much for um, being able to just look at your word. And we thank you for those who came into our lives um, as gospel ministers, not just pastors or elders or overseers, but, but those who ministered the gospel to us so that we could hear the truth that we needed to hear concerning your son and his death, his resurrection, and what he accomplished for us at the cross to atone for our sins. We thank you for their exhortation to us to repent and to believe and that, God, you used them in our lives. We thank you for those who have been ministering to us also with the gospel after we believed, Lord, that they exhort us to live exemplary lives, godly lives, pure lives. They encourage us to trust God. Sometimes they admonish us. Sometimes they just give us good encouragement. They help us when we're weak. Lord, we're thankful for them. And Lord, I pray for these men that you would make them into effective ministers of the gospel wherever they may be, whether it be in Grace Bible Church or outside of Grace Bible Church. But Lord, build them up. Use your word to make them into effective ministers of the gospel. And we ask it in your son's name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great week.